During the Christmas break 10 years ago, my wife and I were in Lima, Peru. Folks, I have to tell you, that is not a great place to visit at Christmas time. I'm so glad I was not born there. I hope their economy is not too dependent on tourism. It was just not an impressive port of call. The people were nice, but the place, not so much. I was amazed to learn that Peru only gets between a half inch and three inches of rain a year, depending on whether you live on the coast or in the north country. Everything is brown, and there are no trees. It's like the descriptions I've read of the Dust Bowl of the 1930s in Kansas and Oklahoma. Now, there are many different places in the world where people live. Some are extremely hot, some are very cold, some are mountainous, some are flat, some are lush, some are barren, some are developed, some are primitive. So with you, we're going to choose any place in the world not to live. Where would that be? I can tell you one place I would not want to live far more than Lima, Peru, and that is Afghanistan. Why, you ask? Well, several reasons. Since the 1970s, for nearly 40 years, the country has been in a continual state of war. First there was the Soviet invasion, then the Mujahideen, and then the Taliban, and since 9-11, the war on terror with America and her allies, and it continues to this day. And the future of Afghanistan is uncertain at best, and the illiteracy rates are appalling, and the economy is in shambles, and life is especially hard for women and children. The people live in darkness there, a deep darkness of ignorance and deprivation and oppression. It's a country not only racked by war and poverty and corruption and disease and death, it's an Islamic country that is without the knowledge of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look in God's Word at another such place. In its time, it was a lot like Afghanistan is today. The people lived in the shadow of death. The year is 720 B.C., and the location is in the vicinity of Galilee. This is the land around the Sea of Galilee that was originally allotted to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Here it is on a map. You can see it's in the northern part of Israel, and because of that, this area was especially vulnerable to foreign invasion. Now the superpower of that day was Assyria. And this northern region of Israel, there on the geographical fringe, fell to the Assyrians who treated the Israelites harshly. They were exiled. They were literally driven out of their homes by force. And the Bible clearly reveals why this disaster occurred. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites 
had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations. They secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel through all His prophets, turn, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees, but they would not listen and were stiff-necked. They rejected His decrees and the covenant He had made with their fathers and the warnings He had given them. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things that the Lord had forbidden them to do. So, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and He removed them from His presence. Now, the prophet Isaiah was living at this time, and he had prophesied to the people about the grim free future they were facing because of their disobedience. And here's what Isaiah had said to the people to try to head off the direction they were going. He warned them, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, I want you to be able to, to feel that, that darkness right now. Distress, utter darkness, gloom, anguish. But then in the midst of this darkness, this shadow of death, in the midst of the war and the suffering and the exile, Isaiah brings a word of hope in chapter 9, verse 1 and following. Here's what Isaiah said to the people. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Here it is. Here's the Christmas message. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah writes, these people are in darkness. They are in the shadow of death, but it will not last forever, he said. There is hope. And, of course, the thing they want to know is when. When is this going to happen? When are things going to be different? Okay, fast forward. 750 years. Wow. That's a long time. And it brings us to 30 A.D., the time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. He grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. He was baptized in the Jordan River. He spent 40 days fasting and being tempted in the wilderness. And then we read the words in Matthew 4, verse 12 and following. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he returned to where? Galilee. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, in the area of Zebulun 
and Naphtali to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I hope you're getting all this. Listen, Isaiah prophesied 750 years beforehand that it would be in this very place, in Galilee, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a place of darkness, a region under the shadow of death, a place where you would never want to live. This is the place where the light would shine. And Jesus was born, and He grew up, and He ministered here in fulfillment of prophecy. And it was a world-changing, history-making event. The light dawned. And it's not just good news for Galileans who lived in Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum then. It's good news today for Afghanistan and for Libya, for Iraq, for Egypt, for North Korea, for Iran, for Syria, for Japan, for India, for Tunisia, for Kenya, for Mali. Good news for all those who dwell in darkness today, all those who dwell in the shadow of death today. You say you're not sure that these places are in darkness today? Take a look at these images. Look at Iran. In 1970, Iran in 2012. And Afghanistan, 1967. Afghanistan, 2011. And Egypt, this is Cairo University, 1959, very same setting, very same geographical location, Egypt, Cairo University, 2012, and then the Netherlands, this is Amsterdam, 1980, then Amsterdam, 2012. But wait just a minute. What about, what about America? We're generally considered the number one place to live on the earth. We have it all. We are a developed country with a very high standard of living. We have a democratic form of government. We have freedoms. We have a higher education system that attracts students from all over the world. We have a moderate climate. We're flanked by great oceans. We've got miles and miles of scenic beaches and mountains. We're a military superpower. We have relatively few earthquakes, tsunamis. We have no oppressive dictatorships. And goodness sakes, gas is under $3 a gallon in a few places right now. Certainly, certainly we, we are not a land living in darkness. Surely, we are not a land living in the shadow of death. But wait, what was it that caused Zebulun and Naphtali to become a land of darkness under the shadow of death? Listen, Galilee was a beautiful land of rolling green hills and a lush countryside and a pleasant climate. It looked a whole lot like Indiana at its best. But despite all of their advantages, distress 
overtook them. Why? Go back to 2 Kings. Remember the list? They sinned against the Lord their God. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of other nations. They secretly did things, wicked things. They worshipped idols. They would not listen. They were stiff-necked. That is, they would not bow before the Lord or submit to His loving reign in their lives. They rejected God's decrees and their covenant with Him. They did things the Lord had forbidden. You see, this is the conduct that will invite darkness and death. And folks, this is where we are today. Do you realize that the United States is number three in unreached people groups behind China and India? We have more unbelievers in the United States in sheer numbers. I want to ask you this morning to hear me out. Morally and spiritually, we are regressing as a nation. And the darkness is deepening. And we're turning away from God. And as a consequence, He is turning away from us. Yes, we live in a great country. But I'm alarmed by the proliferation of natural disasters and man-made tragedies in recent years. In my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it. And it reached an apex last week. And we were all stunned by the evil humanity, inhumanity, of 20 first grade kids and six adults who were executed by a lone gunman at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. But my friends, listen. If you would just go back in time six or seven years and move those precious children from that school into a hospital delivery room, do you realize that the current laws of our society would sanction and even subsidize their brutal murder in the process of their partial birth? Those of us who are convicted that human life begins at conception perpetually live with a less intense but a very similar kind of grief to those parents in Newtown, Connecticut. But instead of, instead of 20 first graders, it's 36,000 future first graders being killed and discarded every day in America alone, except it's not one madman pulling the trigger of an automatic weapon because of his deep-seated bitterness. It's a medical professional calmly performing a procedure with state-of-the-art equipment to accommodate the inconvenience or the preference of someone. But in either case, beating hearts are still. And to speak of the sacredness of marriage these days is to be mocked. Greater numbers, we're rejecting God's cornerstone for the family, the natural order of things. To legalize same-sex marriage in nine states 
and counting. But you see, this issue is on the docket for the Supreme Court in 2013, and that could fast-track this legislation. And if it becomes a law of the land, the darkness will deepen. Tell me, how do we ensure domestic tranquility? How do we promote the general welfare? How do we secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, as promised in our Constitution, by undermining our morality, the sacredness of marriage? Many teens and young adults routinely engage in sexual bonding with multiple partners before marriage, or they cohabit in the name of romantic love, in effect, dismissing God from their personal love life, and with near certainty they destine their present courtship or their future marriage to fail. And it's not just young people. Senior adults move in together without marrying to save a few Social Security dollars, and Medicare fraud abounds and meth labs proliferate, and marijuana becomes legal, and the prospect of the debt ceiling being raised by one individual, regardless of political party, one person who can obligate our children and grandchildren to pay back trillions, and on and on, the darkness encroaches as we do the very same things that were being done in Israel in the day of Isaiah the very same things that resulted in the abandonment by God. And was, when God is not present, the light goes out and darkness rules. Boy, it just dawned on me, this is just a terrible Christmas sermon. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> what about the glorious angels singing? What about the quaint little village of Bethlehem? What about the Virgin Mary? What about the baby in a manger? What about the shepherds and the wise men who journeyed from the east to present their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh? And what about old Simeon and Anna at baby Jesus' dedication in the temple? What about the picturesque nativity scene? It's all good. It's all good. It's part of Christmas, and I love it too. But listen. Jesus came to light the darkness, and He does it with a single word. A single word. Do you know what that word is? Back to Matthew 4. Right after it says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We read these words, verse 17, from that time on. Jesus began to preach, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, repent. That is, make changes, make changes in your life. Israel was judged and they were relegated to the darkness that they thought they preferred, the shadow of death that they thought they could control. They'd been warned by the prophets. It just made them mad. They persecuted the prophets. They spurned their message. They persisted in doing secret things, evil things. People needed to repent in Isaiah's day. People needed to repent in Jesus' day. And people need to repent in our day. 
So what about you? Do you do what's right in God's sight? Or do you have some idols set up in your heart? Are you worshiping gods of education, gods of career, or pleasure, or power, or money, or fame, or possessions? best way to answer that is to ask yourself, is the Lord my priority? Is He number one? Not talking about in some glib general sense, but when you make specific decisions about how to spend your time, how to spend your money, how to spend your energy, when you make decisions about whom to marry, what job to choose, where to live, what drives your decisions, God and His best for your life or something else? Do you hunger for His Word? Do you study it consistently, personally, seriously? Do you love your enemies? Do you resist sexual temptation? Do you serve? Do you help the needy? Do you witness your faith to others? Are you truly living your life day by day to bring honor to God? Jesus came to light the darkness, but His message, His method demands that we repent, that we change, and we don't like to change. We don't like to limit our TV watching. We don't want to discipline ourselves in the areas of diet and exercise. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to control our spending or resist debt or grow in a giving spirit. And we don't want to try to have a devotional time with our spouse and children. And we don't want to volunteer. And we don't want to attend worship every weekend. And if we do, we don't want to hang around after services and talk to people. We want to keep our routine of coming in late and leaving early. We don't want to quit that bad habit. It may be hurting our witness as a Christian, but to repent, <laughs> to repent is to, it's, it's to make changes, and change requires humility, and this is where we get hung up. We're too proud, and proud people not only do not change, they will not change, like Israel, stiff-necked, but my friends... That is not a posture that will bring us into fellowship with God. We've got to come humbly to Christ. Repentance requires humility. Confession re requires humility. Baptism requires humility. Communion requ requires humility. Serving requires humility. This Christmas sermon can be summed up in one single word. It is the word of Jesus. It is the word repent, because this is how Jesus lights the darkness then, and it's how He lights the darkness now, and it's how He lights the darkness in my life and yours, and how He lights the darkness in our nation. But we say things like, come to Jesus for a new life. Come to Jesus and be blessed. Come to Jesus and experience forgiveness. Come to Jesus and give your life meaning and purpose. And all this is true. But how often do we say, come to Jesus and repent. Come to Jesus and make changes in your life. And if you're here today and you've never repented, you've never turned the management of your life over to the Lord Jesus. You never turned away from a life centered 
on yourself. Jesus is calling you today. It's no accident you're here. He wants you to step out of the darkness of pride, and he wants you to step into the light of a life of humility and perpetual growth, perpetual change. Can you hear these words of Jesus again at Christmas 2012 for the very first time? <laughs> Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And repentance isn't a dark thing. It's a bright thing. It's a light thing. During Jesus' ministry, he declared in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, he said in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Colossians 1.13 says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I want to close with some words of Jesus in John 3.19. Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And he's already identified himself as that light. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed and he will have to change. But whoever lives by the truth, whoever humbly repents, changes, comes into the light, Jesus said, this is the verdict. So what is your verdict today? What is your choice? Light or darkness? Repentance or resistance? Humility or pride? Change or sameness? What is your decision about receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? What is your decision about being added to his church.